Mark 12, 18-27. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As pastors, or even as Christians, we are approached with all sorts of questions coming from both believers and unbelievers. Uh, One of the most common questions have to do with what heaven will be like in all its fine details. And the wise yet not so informed response is often, I don't know. We are limited to what the Bible teaches. Now the questions are usually well-meaning and involve things that we often think about as believers. Yet these are often things that will not be answered until the return of Christ. Often my response to these questions will be, I don't know. But the situation that is at play in our text this morning is a bit different than just asking some questions. We are still on the the third day of Passion Week since Jesus entered Jerusalem two days prior. And Jesus is inside the temple where he has been answering questions coming from chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and some Herodians, those who follow Herod. Now he is approached by some Sadducees. The Sadducees were much like the Pharisees, but they came from well-known priestly families. And they were also made up of chief priests and scribes. A good thing to know in approaching this text is knowing the difference between these groups and their questions. Earlier, the chief priests and scribes approached Jesus with a question questioning his authority when he cleansed the temple, mainly because their authority was being challenged. The Pharisees and Herodians' question is mostly political with some religious implications. And they question him mainly to trap him. Now, in order to understand the reasoning behind the Sadducees' question, we must first understand the major differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees when it comes to doctrine. The Sadducees approach Jesus with a religious or theological question. 
And this question was rooted in their doctrinal differences with the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God over all history. They were the Calvinists of their day. While the Sadducees believed that human history is decided by human free will, sort of like Arminians or the Wesleyan friends we have. The Pharisees believed in the influence of angels and demons in human affairs, while the Sadducees didn't believe in their existence at all. The Pharisees believed in what we call today all of the Old Testament as Scripture, including the prophets, while the Sadducees believed that only the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, to be Scripture. So this would help explain why the Pharisees believed in the afterlife and the resurrection of all people at the end of history, because they based their beliefs as it was developed in the books of the prophets, while the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife or the resurrection of the dead. This forms the background to their question. Now they approach him with this question, not because they wanted to know the answer, but because they wanted to disprove the reality of a bodily resurrection at the end of time, or they wanted to make Jesus look foolish in front of all these crowds, and at the same time alienate the Pharisees. They try to make the resurrection sound so absurd because its implications would be impossible to explain in certain situations Or so they thought. It's the same kind of reasoning behind some folks who nitpick at the various details of the Bible. Their motive for nitpicking is to bring up a certain situation or circumstance where they will say, Aha! I got you now. Explain that one to me. It's impossible. It defies science. I don't see this happening today. So they conclude that the Bible can't be true. Listen to the question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, The woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. See how ridiculous they were trying to make the resurrection sound? Uh, There must have been chuckles, eye-winking, and elbow taps among the Sadducees while the question was posed. I mean, they couldn't be serious. But they couldn't see that this was actually intellectual and spiritual laziness. They were referring to when Moses made provisions for a married man who dies with no heir to keep the family name in Israel. This was called the Leverate Laws of Marriage. It says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. We see a version of this take place in the story of Ruth. 
But the likelihood of having seven brothers married to the same wife and never bearing any children was so improbable and ridiculous. But this was to make the resurrection sound impossible because of these sorts of situations like, this could happen, so explain that one to me, right? We see this happen all the time in public debate or even debates with unbelievers. Because there is a belief out there that says that the afterlife is going to be just like this life that we know now. And if we are married here, we will be married to the same wife or husband there. So in the case of a woman having seven husbands, either this disproves that there is an afterlife, or she's got her hands full in the afterlife. I bet they didn't expect the response that they were about to receive. Now listen to Jesus' response to this ridiculous question. In our hypersensitive, passive-aggressive, and politically correct society, you're no longer allowed to point out when someone is wrong. It is believed and taught that if you point out that someone is wrong in their belief, that it is unloving or judgmental. Now, there are times where we should bite our tongues and we shouldn't be overly obsessed with correcting others. That could be a sign of another deeper issue. But there are other times that we need to speak up and we need to tell people when they are wrong. Here, Jesus says to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are wrong? See, Jesus was not passive. He wasn't a free-loving hippie or politically correct. It's okay to say to someone who is teaching or believing falsely that they are wrong. It is not unloving, nor judgmental, nor hypocritical to say to someone they are wrong. It is called correction. We all need to be corrected at some point. Children need to be corrected. Adults need to be corrected. One of the many reasons why our society and many churches are in chaos is because there is no more correction for the fear of being called a bigot or accused of being judgmental or get this, the fear of being called a Pharisee. The ironic and funny thing is, it is Jesus, not the Pharisees, who turns to the Sadducees and clearly tells them, you are wrong. Just because you believe something so strongly doesn't mean you're right. You can be passionate about certain teachings and still be wrong. And he gives the reasons why they are wrong. It is not enough to tell people they are wrong. You've got to tell them the reasons why they are wrong. And there are two reasons. These are the same two reasons why many people today are wrong in their beliefs. First, he tells them they do not know the scriptures. This is a major reason why many Christians are wrong and have drifted away from sound teaching. And this is a major reason why many hostile unbelievers who question what we believe and come up with all sorts of ridiculous notions about the Bible are wrong. They do not know the scriptures. Believe it or not, there are those who say they believe in Christianity They believe in the moral principles of Christianity, yet they do not believe in the doctrine 
of the resurrection and the afterlife in the way that the Bible teaches. These are those we must correct and say that you're wrong. This is what the Bible says. And even if they do know the scriptures, they can be using it the wrong way. See, what the scribes were doing was that they were isolating passages to try to trick Jesus and disprove a key doctrine. As I've mentioned before, one of the tools of interpretation that we use is that Scripture interprets Scripture. If one passage is confusing or unclear, we use other clear Scriptures to help inform our understanding of the unclear. Also, we read passages in their surrounding context. We begin with the paragraph that it is in, then the chapter, then the letter, then we consider the entire Bible and what it teaches, that is the Old and New Testaments. If our understanding of a passage contradicts another passage in Scripture, then we are wrong in our understanding of that passage. We can't take a passage and say, aha, this is the end-all passage more important than any other passage, right? No. One prime example is the famous judge not, that you be not judged. People use that to say, you can't tell me I'm wrong. But that is not what Jesus was saying. If you read a little further, he says, do not give dogs what is holy. In other words, if you see that someone is not receiving correction, then move on which requires you to make a judgment about someone else. What he was criticizing was hypocritical judgment. You're judging someone while you are doing the same thing or worse, right? But you need to repent first, so you won't be a hypocrite when you tell other people that they are wrong. Because we are still required to correct others. And this is why it is important for the Christian to know the scriptures. The second reason why they are wrong is that they do not know the power of God. Because the resurrection is not just about human potential or human ingenuity or human free will. Remember, they relied on the power of human free will to decide their destiny. For many people, the afterlife and where we end up is based on human strength or power, maybe channeled through meditation or some sort of mysticism. But that is not the case because we do not have the power to give ourselves life. Once we're dead, there's nothing we can do or have done that will recharge our battery. God is the God of life And he alone has the power to raise our dead bodies. We can't choose to be resurrected. Resurrection is a fact. And it will happen. And it won't be by choice. Now was the reason why they did not know the power of God. Was that they did not know the scriptures? Possibly. Because in the opening verses of the scriptures it tells us. How God created all things. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That is the power of God. That is a power we do not have. 
Now those of us who believe in God, who have come to know God, we know of this power. We know of the power of God. We know His power to give sight to the blind, opening the eyes of dead sinners and giving us new life. We have just a foretaste of this power. So we ought to know the answer to the question, is He able to create something out of nothing? Do you think He is able to recreate a better creation? Do you think He is able to raise people from the dead and give them new bodies and a new creation to enjoy? We should answer in the affirmative. Yes, He can. He has the power to do so. And only God has that power. And this new creation is called heaven. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any of this. Now, we must remember the question. Their question was about marriage and whether or not we will be reunited with our spouses in heaven. And to point out the ridiculousness of the notion of the resurrection, the Sadducees asked about a situation where someone was married seven times. Would that person be reunited to all seven people? Now this is an important question. Because marriage between a man and a woman is the most intimate relationship we have in this world, humanly speaking. And after being with someone for so long and then losing them, our hope is that we will see them again in heaven. But the question is, what will be the nature of that relationship in heaven? You hear this in many non-Christian marriages today. Instead of saying, till death do us part, in their vows, they have replaced that idea with the idea that they will be married for eternity. When in reality and unfortunately, most marriages never pass five years these days. But Jesus says, for when, not if, they rise from the dead, but when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now that is a clear jab to the Sadducees because they didn't believe in angels either. He says they will be like angels. There are a couple of things he is not saying here. He is not minimizing or dismissing marriages. He is not saying marriage is unimportant. He is not discouraging marriages. Also, he is not saying that humans become angels when they die. That is another wrong belief. How many people you hear these days say when a family member dies that they are angels in heaven watching over us? No. They are in the immediate presence of God either enjoying inexplicable joy or they are in torment. So Jesus is not saying we become angels, but we become like angels in our relationships we will have in heaven. He is speaking about the types of relationships we will have. Just like angels don't get married, in heaven we will not be married. Some of you are saying to yourselves, Amen. Heaven is indeed a place of joy. But it's really not that bad, is it? The point he is trying to make is that God is powerful. 
God is so powerful to create a new world where all of our relationships are so deep and so full of joy and delight that marriage will no longer be needed. There will be no procreation in marriage. The pleasure and love that we share in marriage will be constant and so much more elevated in heaven. Now, what are all the implications of this? I have no idea. Please don't ask. This makes for more questions, right? But I don't think it's for us to know. And it is best we don't think too much into it so we're not led astray. All this is to say is that the life to come is not the same as this life. And that the Sadducees were wrong in not believing in a life to come. So if you know the scriptures, then you will come to know the power of God. The same God who created all things out of nothing is the same God who is able to raise us from the dead. In fact, Jesus will prove this to his people in his day when he is raised from the dead and he walked among 500 witnesses. And this means that one day we too will be raised from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, an entire chapter devoted to the subject, which I encourage all those who doubt to read this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. When Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, raised from the dead and exalted. That is the end goal of the gospel. The gospel is not merely about present things and present situations. Remember the question that they asked him prior to this one. They asked about paying taxes. Their minds were distracted with worldly things. They were trying to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus reminded them of their utmost duty to God. They were so tied to this world that they were blinded of what is to come. Many of us have become so worldly with our Christianity. We're overly concerned with worldly matters that we forget about our greater hope. We get caught up in current events that we forget to tell others of this greater hope in this sad and sorrowful world filled with death and sin. We forget to tell others of the hope of the resurrection. Now we all suffer at different levels in our bodies. We all suffer from losing others whom we are close to. The hope is that God will restore these bodies in heaven. Without the resurrection of the dead, you don't have the gospel and you don't have Christianity. As Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The gospel points us forward to when we will be a changed humanity in the presence of God in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation 
testifies to that truth. And that is the direction that Jesus was moving in in his conversation. But before we move on, remember two things. First, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the afterlife. And they would say it was because they believed it wasn't taught in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These were the only books they believed to be scripture. Now the second thing to remember is that Jesus told them that they did not know the scriptures. In other words, he was saying to them, if you believe that the first five books of the Bible do not teach about the resurrection or the afterlife, you have been deceived And you have misread the scriptures. You missed something very important about God. Also, remember, angels are all over the first five books of the Bible. But anyway, listen to his second teaching. And since they do not know the scriptures, this time he opens the scriptures to them. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, how does that prove that there is a resurrection from the dead? How does God being the God of some dead people prove that he is the God of the living? Well, he goes to the scriptures that the Sadducees claim they believe by referring to Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed himself in a burning bush. The bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed by the fire. That was to symbolize who God is in himself as the living God, the God who creates. He created the bush, right? And he sustains life even when the bush is burning. Just like when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not burn in the fiery furnace because God was there. He sustained them. And he even reveals his name as I am. That is another way of saying I am constant. I am ever present. I am ever living. I am the source of life. So he has the power to declare when life begins and when life ends and begins again. And this everlasting and ever-living God has made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just because they died physically doesn't mean that is the end of his covenant promises to them. His covenant is said to be everlasting throughout the scriptures. In fact, Jesus is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all still alive. Think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When they both died, the rich man looked up as he was in torment and saw Lazarus with who? Abraham. We see this even in the transfiguration when Moses appeared speaking to Jesus after he has long since died. So what Jesus is saying is that the promises of God were not for this life only. If his covenant is everlasting and in order to make a covenant, you need two parties. One being God 
and the other being the people of God, then His people must also be everlasting. So to suggest that there is no life beyond this life is to suggest that God is a liar and that He is not faithful to His promises. But we know that is a lie. So we know that there is a life beyond the grave. Death will not have the final say. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Is what we will all be saying. Remember, his faithfulness was ultimately displayed when he raised his son from the dead for us. That was a marker to point us to our ultimate hope. So to deny the resurrection is to become a practical atheist. Another interesting thing to note is that after God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he sent Moses to Pharaoh and as a warning of judgment, he told Moses to throw his staff down and it will turn into a serpent. Do you know what the serpent was a symbol of in Egypt at that time? It was a symbol of resurrection. God was using Moses to tell Pharaoh that Pharaoh's gods were false gods and that the God of Moses is the true and living God. He is the God of the living and the dead and that He has ultimate power and authority over all creation and existence itself. Not Isis, not Horus, not Osiris, none of the gods of Egypt can compete with this God and that the resurrection is real and that Pharaoh will be raised from the dead. All will be raised on judgment day to be saved and acquitted or judged and condemned. And all of that hinges on whether or not you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has said and what he has done. The most important question that many people ask is what happens to me when I die? Do we continue living? Jesus is saying, yes, there is life after death. And if you don't believe that, you are wrong. There is life because he is the God of the living. Sin through Adam brought death, but through his death, Jesus Christ brought life everlasting. To reject that is to reject the gospel. And he also points to the fact that the only place we find The true answers to our questions, now these are uh, answers that the Lord has revealed, not the secret things that belongs to Him alone, but the answers that He has revealed to our questions is found in our Bibles. So it is of uh, utmost importance that Christians know their Bibles. Because it is through the Bible that we know our God, His power, and His faithfulness to save us from death. And so that we may be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. It is a sad reality that all Christians read the same Bible but don't always agree on some of the most important topics found in the Bible. 
And this is one of the most important to believe. Because it is our ultimate hope. In the shadows of sin, death and misery. In the shadow of losing loved ones whom we love so dearly. In the shadows of losing a child. Or losing someone who's very old. The hope is that one day we will be raised and we will see our loved ones and we will see our God in the flesh face to face. Amen.